And so the question before us, we're thinking about emotions, thinking about our interior life as embodied image bearers. Should you always follow your heart? And the Bible says, no. Okay. For example, here, Ephesians 4, 20 through 24, listen to these, these verses. The Apostle Paul says, but that's not the way you learn Christ. He's, he's just finished speaking of different ways that unbelievers, the way that we all lived in the world before Jesus saved us. Now he says, that's not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self. Other translations say put off the old man. I like that, the notion of old man, because we've learned that the original man was Adam and we need to put on the new Adam. So it's like saying put off the old Adam and put on Jesus So put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Instead, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the, note the word, likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we're thinking about emotions. We're thinking about our interior life. Uh, Open social media. You don't have to scroll very far. You don't have to listen to many podcasts, YouTube creators, or even just news segments. And the assumption of our world is that if you feel it, it's right, and you should follow it. And if you don't follow it, you're wrong and inauthentic. So have you lost love for your spouse? Divorce them. Leave them, says the world. Do you not like your job? Ditch it. Find something that's going to give you meaning and more and more and more and more. But look at this tight passage here. I, I underlined a, some key terms to, for us to, to, to notice. So if we live in a world that says the inner part of you is the true part of you. And to be the authentic you is to feel your feels and live them out. Look at the words here in the Bible about what we're supposed to do. Notice the multiple references to learned, heard, taught, and truth. And those words refer to knowledge and information and teaching and truth originating outside of us, derived from the gospel of Christ from the Bible. Now, learned and taught and truth... They go into the interior part of our person, the immaterial part of us, but it's not generated from within us. It's from without. Paul's making an argument that there is an old way you used to live, an old way you used to think, an old way that you used to feel, an old way that you used to intuit things and perceive things, and they all belong, this verse 22, to your old self and they need to they are corrupt through deceitful desires they need to be put off so notice these words our remaining sin even as a believer the remaining sin the old self is corrupt through deceitful desires so you see the contrast something outside of us you need to hear you need to learn you need the truth outside of you to be told to you why? Because inside of us is 
corrupt, deceitful desires. The, our will, our emotions, our feelings are corrupt and deceitful. So we need something outside of us to come into us to change the corrupt, deceitful desires. Just notice, this is the exact opposite. This idea is diametrically opposed to everything the world preaches and social media preaches, especially to younger and younger generations of how to live, move, and have their being in the world. And these words, that word corrupt, it's moldy, spoiled, rotten. It's morally wicked, depraved. The Apostle Paul says our old self was corrupt. And what made it moldy, spoiled, rotten? What made it morally wicked? Deceitful desires. So you need to so follow the logic of the text. The clear meaning of what he is saying, deceitful desires. What does deceitful mean? It's a lie masquerading as the truth. Right? It's Halloween. It's a lie with a costume on, but not an ugly costume. A beautiful costume. It's a lie that is going to look like an angel of light, not the angel of death. That's what deceit is. Deceit is a lie that looks true, sounds true, perceives true, feels true, and it's a lie. So it's deceitful. Deceit is a lie masquerading as the truth. Deceit is a trap. It looks safe, but if you step on it, the mind will blow up. You'll fall into the hole. Deceit looks good and feels good. It seems like it's true. It seems like it's beautiful. It seems like it's life-giving. But deceit is always bad, false, ugly, enslaving, and life-taking. We just need to spend a lot of time thinking about what the word deceit means. So it looks good and right. So what makes deception so deceitful is that it's deceptive. Because on the surface, you don't know. You have to test, you have to investigate, you have to listen, you have to discern. And so this is saying that inside of us, even Christians who are born again, there's still the old self that is corrupt through deceitful, and then look at the third word, desires. Desire is another word for your will. It's what you want. It's what you crave. It's what you long for. Uh, The Greek word for lust can be used positively and negatively. The word lust is only used negatively in our culture, but it just means a very, very strong controlling desire. And it can either be used in good ways or bad ways in the Greek. But here it's deceitful desires. So take this in reverse. The non-Christian and even the Christian, born again in Christ, we have remaining sin, which means our longings and our cravings, your emotions, the things that you want, those desires can be deceitful. So the lie that feels good and masquerades as the truth seems beautiful and right. Where is it coming from in this text? It's coming from in me. It's coming from my desires. So my desires, even as a Christian, 
can deceive me. They are corrupt. They get moldy, spoiled, rotten. They're morally wicked and depraved. And then we live them out. You know, it's that song, if it, if it feels so good, how can it be so wrong? Is that Marvin Gaye or somebody? Does anybody know? You guys are all Christians. Rose, who is it? It's Marvin Gaye. It's Marvin Gaye. I think you're a Christian. so much better now. Yeah. So should we always follow our heart? This is why the answer is is no. In this passage, something from outside of us. We have to learn Jesus, hear about Jesus, be taught about Jesus, because the truth is in Jesus. That was verses 20 and 21. Those come into us and they reveal to us that our desires deceive us. So it could be your business practices. It could be the boyfriend you're pursuing, the girlfriend you're pursuing. It could be the sexual expression that you're pursuing. It could be anything, anything that we, in this world, our desires can deceive us. And so the antidote is outside of us to hear the gospel of Jesus from all the Bible. In contrast, learning, teaching, etc., deceitful desires paints the picture of a pure feeling without thinking. This is lowercase d in the middle of the page. The idea here is that if you don't have the learning of Christ, a person only has corrupt, deceitful desires. And it means that it's a person who is pure feeling without thinking, let alone thinking about the truth. It's a picture of a person being led astray like an animal. And we're going to get to this in a little bit, but what is, what is the mantra? Of, well, there's many mantras of our age, but it's this one. I feel, and here comes the truth claim. So what we see in scripture is we, you have to say, I think, and then you make your truth claim. And if you feel something, it needs to be calibrated. Your emotions, your desires need to be calibrated by the word of God. And so the picture then is if you don't have the word of God coming into you, you are pure feeling and not thinking. Uh, It brought to mind Proverbs 7 here. This is Lady Folly and the Foolish Man. So both of these are fools. That's why she's called Lady Folly. It says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him with her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside, your inner person. Let not your heart Turn aside to her ways, don't strain to her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. So in this text, the antidote to corrupt deceitful desires is not good desires, but renewing the mind with the word of Christ to then have good desires. 
That's the replacement. He says, verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So when my mind is renewed with the word, my deceitful desires are combated and I'm able to put on Jesus. That's verse 24. You know, as we think about should we always follow our heart, this text alone obliterates the modern notion that we should. And in fact, it shows how suicidal it is to follow the corrupt desires of our heart. But if you keep going, uh, bottom 27, for those outside of Christ, the heart, that is the entire inner person, is desperately wicked. So Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. ESV says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The New King James and King James actually say desperately wicked. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, verse 10, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So our emotions, will, our desire, our feelings, our judgments, our thoughts, our intents and motives, our evaluations, etc. are all deceitful and unreliable guides since they are all shaped and driven by rebellion to God. This is a point we're going to get to in a few minutes. If our world says, follow your heart, you do you. The authentic self is you on the outside. And to be a true human is to live out what you feel. What our world doesn't acknowledge, our world doesn't acknowledge what, our world has its own species of sin. But we're going to see in a few moments that when Adam and Eve fell, and we all fell in them, and we are all sinners by nature, sinners by practice, sinners by choice, And sinners by God's declaration. That means the inner part of you. Is also sinful. All of it. Our emotions. Are tainted by sin. Our interpretation. Our motives. That long list of just words. Compiled together that speak to our inner person. That's why they say they're deceitful. And unreliable guides. Without the word of God. Without the Holy Spirit. Because they're driven in rebellion to God. So following your heart will always keep you led astray from God. Continuing to think about this, just pressing through this, kind of kind of moving a little bit quick through this. Because of that, God will not bless what he's already condemned in his word. So uh, my friend, we were in college. He was my college roommate and post-college roommates. We're sitting in his truck in the parking lot at church. He had just come back from Europe, and he had swooned over this beautiful girl that he met, who not only was not a Christian, she was an active atheist. And he was one of our worship leaders. And he was so infatuated, so obsessed with uh, this foreign beauty that that um, he was deciding to leave America and go back overseas and to pursue a relationship with her. 
And sitting in his pickup truck, I was doing all I could to tell him, don't go. God will not bless what he has condemned in his word. God has already forbidden for a believer to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. You, my friend, are a Christian. She is a avowed non-Christian. And you're going, you are infatuated and you're going to go live with her. Multiple layers of sin there. And they got married. It's a sad story. Is he walking with Christ? Not at all. God will not bless what he has condemned in his word. And what we all need to realize is that our world thinks the opposite. In other words, that if you follow your heart, you'll be blessed, so to speak. But the Christian must recognize the, that, that our feelings and desires and impulses, our instincts may convince us that wrong is right, yet wrong always remains wrong in God's sight. So Isaiah 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. So we think because the way we feel makes it right, that must mean God thinks it's right. And I spent enough time with middle schoolers and high schoolers and college students and post-college adults and all people to know that because we are born and raised in this world, in this age, we are still prone to thinking that it just feels really good to me. I just think it's a really good idea. I feel that it's a good idea. God must be in this. Christians are not immune to that. So I gave the dating a non-Christian example. The same with how powerful sexual desire is. Sexual expression or engagement of sexual activity outside of biblical marriage may feel very right and feel so driven and compulsive to do whatever you're going to do. And it is always wrong in God's sight. It is always a sin. And I have to put in there regarding biblical marriage, defining it as one biological man and one biological woman formally wed before God and witnesses. If he says that you're married in God's eyes, he's lying to you. You have to get married before witnesses. So the gift of the new covenant gospel is a new heart, a new spirit, and God's Holy Spirit to to write God's word on the believer's new heart. And there's Ezekiel 36 there. So go down. Um, while the Christian's inner person is being sanctified into the image of Christ, there remains a daily battle to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. And so what I want you to hear is this was a, a very starkly and fairly forcefully, I hope, painting the picture that do we follow our heart? No, which means that we as Christians to follow Jesus is to not follow our heart 
means that the decisions that we make and the life that we live is going to be the antithesis of everything the world does. And we're going to live in a way that's differently. Why are you staying in that relationship if it seems so loveless? Why are you not going out with him or her even though they're not a believer? Why, why are you being so... Why did you accidentally go to Target and put these items in your bag that you accidentally stole and so you went back in and paid for them? Why are you living in a way that's contrary to the world? It's because we're putting on the ways of Christ. So remember that our emotions... The entire interior of ourselves, they are a gift from God. They are an aspect of bearing his image. And at the same time, emotions and desires and impulses, the entire inner person must be submitted to and evaluated by all of scripture. And whenever there is unconformity, meaning what I want and what scripture says don't match up, who wins in that, who should win in that moment? Scripture, Jesus' word. In the moments when, when I want something that Christ does not, he's clearly forbidden his word, we must repent, put off sin, and put on Christ's likeness by the Spirit according to the word. So again, hammering this, just because we feel something does not mean it's good, right, true, only insofar as it accords with the word of God. And this is what's important to recognize about ourselves as believers. So we've dealt with what the world says and how that's wrong and don't follow your heart. Here we're being reminded that as Christians, emotions aren't pure sin. The entire life is in pure sin. In Jesus, they're being renewed after the image of the creator, right? That's what Paul said in Ephesians. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, renewed in the spirit of your minds. So I think, how do we make sense of ourselves? Because if the micro- microphone could go around to every single one of us in this room, and we could all tell stories, even today, of warring desires in our heart, and fighting against sin and more. So the po- top of page 29, sorry, I have not been keeping along. Martin Luther's famous theological summary and description of the Christian life is helpful here. We are, as believers in Christ, simultaneously justified and sinful. So, God has imputed or credited Jesus' righteousness to us by grace through faith. God treated Jesus on the cross... As if he lived your life. So that by faith in Jesus. God would now treat you as if you'd lived Jesus' life. It's another way of talking about the great exchange. God credited our, all of our sin. Past, present, and future. To Jesus on the cross. And God credits all of Jesus' perfection and righteousness. And love of the Lord and more to us. And that God sees us in Christ. So Martin Luther is right. We are justified. We can never become more or less justified, more or less righteous, more or less loved by God than the first moment we were born again and believed. This is our forever position in Christ. This is the believer's position in Christ. And yet, Luther rightly points out, based on scripture, 
God has seen fit not to glorify us the moment we're born again. Right? Give us new glorified bodies. Remove all sin. Even though we're still a new creation. But instead, the Christian life is one of sanctification. Sanctification is the ongoing process of the Christian being further and further conformed into the image of Christ. Including every aspect of the inner person. So your emotions, your desire, your will, your intuitions, and more. All the terms we can multiply for the interior of the human person. So as you think about then the struggle that we face, it's important to realize that the believer does not follow their heart. And yet, as our hearts are calibrated more and more by the word of God, our emotions are aren't all thoroughly bad. There are good, true emotions. We can have righteous anger, but we can still have unrighteous anger and more. I just want to pause here for a moment and ask if there's any questions before I go any further. So thinking about to be a person is to be embodied, and then we're dividing, we're dissecting ourselves into physical and immaterial, and we're looking at the inner person right now. And we're talking about emotions in the interior life. Yes, Ron, here comes a microphone. So I've worked uh, with many wonderful non-believing people. And I admire them greatly. They are just princes, um, but not believers. So... um, they're, they don't seem to be desperately wicked. How can that be? Excellent question. Thank you for asking that. Two things with maybe some footnotes. Uh, number one, I said earlier that we are sinners by nature, by practice, by choice, and by God's declaration. That's a brief summary of the doctrine of sin. But God has a restraining grace where humans are not as bad as they can possibly be. They're not as bad as they can thoroughly be, but they're thoroughly bad. So we're not all out just axe murderers. It's not pure anarchy because of sin. God's restraining grace, even in the life of an unbeliever, means that they're not as bad as they can possibly be, but every part of them is still bad. And by bad, I mean sinful. And believers have remaining sin. And so there are believers, or excuse me, there are unbelievers who we could probably think of and point to that from a horizontal earthly perspective genuinely seem to love their wife more than maybe you do or uh, a wife respecting her husband more or uh, doing more earthly good. The difference is whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And that's, that's quoting, um, well, Paul in a couple of places, summarize. But um, what it, that means that even the unbeliever who is far more generous with their money and and even eradicates polio and measles and does this amazing earthly good for other people, if it's not done by faith in God, 
it's a condemnable good worthy of hell. So that would be a way of thinking about it in that it's possible from a horizontal perspective that an unbeliever could be nicer than a lot of Christians. I've kind of experienced that. But their niceness doesn't glorify God. It's the residual image of God in them, but that would be a way of, of answering that. Because you, you hear these words and the picture is that everyone is, is Satan incarnate running around. But we have to see the texture of whatever that does not proceed from faith is sin. Good question. Yes, Diane. Could you just repeat the four ways that we're sinners? I got nature, practice, God's declaration, but I missed one. And choice. Thank you. Sinners by nature, it's what we are. So uh, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power of the air. So our, our nature is to do the will of our father outside of Christ, which is Satan. Uh, so our nature is fallen. Um, nature practice, what's what we do. Choice, it's what we want to do. And most importantly, God's declaration, it's what God says we are. Okay, let's move forward, friends. Middle of page 29 here, Jesus confirms... Then our inner person, desires, feelings, leanings, motives, etc., can be sinful. A person may have godly anger, but a person who has ungodly anger, even if they don't physically act out on it, commits murder in their heart. Their feeling is sin. So we're starting to turn things back on the way the world is catechizing us or teaching us to think about our feelings the world says no feelings are wrong jesus says feelings can be wrong outside of him so a person who is sinfully angry jesus says in matthew 5 sermon on the mount if you're sinfully angry with somebody else you're actually murdering them in your heart so that's a sinful emotion uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when someone uses words to insult or abuse, the intent of those words, along with the words themselves, are sin. Right? That's where he says, if you call your brother, you fool. You're in danger of hellfire, Jesus says. But it's not just the words that you hear. It's the heart from which those words emerged. So if you're with us last year, uh, what was one of the classes we were in, uh, we heard it said that um, you should never say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean what I said. You should say, I'm sorry for meaning what I said. Because you said it and it came out of your heart. So for a husband, for example, to sexually desire his wife is a good thing. But for a man to sexually desire his in his heart, in his heart, a woman who is not his wife is sinful, and vice versa, women for men. See Matthew 5 regarding lust and committing adultery in your heart. So Jesus locates in the Sermon on the Mount that your emotions and your desires themselves can be sinful. So note that our feelings, habits, desires, impulses, etc. often feel like they happen to us. 
They're out of our control. The sinful anger just explodes. The fuse is lit. Boom. The anger, the words come out. The vein pops out of your neck. But Jesus and the rest of Scripture provide no excuse, no middle ground, and there's no lack of accountability just because we don't consciously choose sinful anger or even maybe deplore and fight against it. So an un, a, a, a non-born-again dad could grieve over his harsh treatment of his kids and it's still sin. He can fight against it. He may not consciously choose it, but he is still accountable for it and so is the Christian. Because people have unwanted feelings, unwanted, unwanted desires. The effects of the fall and our remaining sin are still present and active. We all have our own besetting sins, which we must daily mortify. It's the old language for kill it. And be ever vigilant for new sins that arise, recognizing this leads to a culture of grace and humility on the one hand and a willingness to help one another out of sin on the other. Because we know we need help. So as much as the world shouts it, it is never hateful. As much as the world shouts it, it is never hateful to love someone with the truth of Christ and help them see, repent, and put off their sin. So many believers are unwilling to have someone speak the truth and love to them and listen to another believer tell them, something they can't see, believe that person has the best interest for them in mind. And so this person's loving me by exposing my sin to me. So, and people get offended. Christians can get offended when you show them their sin, but a Christian should be thankful for pointing out my sin, helping me see it and helping me put it off. But here I'm also thinking about the world, right? This book that we have is a book of hate speech from the world's perspective. We'll talk about that more. But what the world does, here's what you should do, is what you hear the headlines say, just assume the opposite is true. <laughs> and it's probably true. Same thing with the memes and gifts and more. And so for the Christian, this is where we need courage. Because to go and tell someone, hey, you're wrong, that's hate speech. But in the Bible, that's love speech. Because you're walking up to them and saying, you, you have a gigantic growth of cancer on your face and it's going to kill you if you don't go to the doctor to get it removed. And the cancer is a spiritual metaphor for all of the sin in your life and God is going to pour out eternal wrath on you if you don't repent of your sin and believe. So just recognize that evangelism today, going on campus, standing against professors, fellow classmates, things along those lines, the world is going to call you a bigot, if you're a guy, a misogynist, definitely a racist, and certainly hateful. But you have to recognize that the world thinks their interior life can do no wrong, and Jesus says, oh yes it can, and it's going to send you to hell. Questions on that before we move forward to same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria?
one of the aims here in having these texts in your pages, you know these perhaps, you've read them perhaps, but but this this is to strengthen and give you a very strong bedrock understanding of what the Bible says it means to be human so that when you go to work tomorrow morning and go to class tomorrow morning or go hang out with unbelieving friends tomorrow morning or whatever your deal is, that you can actually give a defense for why you believe what you believe and a reasoned and well-thought-out defense. So the issue of same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria and the whole spectrum of LGBTQ+, is going to come up later in the section on gender. But we are dealing with right now the interior of the person. We have spent time looking at all of these texts to see that Jesus and all the Bibles say that what we feel can be wrong and sin and a corrupt, deceitful desire. So what about same-sex attraction, gender dysphoria, particularly as a true Christian? While this topic will be developed more fully in the following section on gender, it's critical to point out that attractions and orientations and the like, what we feel, sexually desire, lust, remain affected by the fall, even as a believer. Our fallen nature and remaining sin, therefore, for the, it all must be brought into submission to the word of God. Like all sin, same-sex attraction and sexual desire and gender dysphoria are a result of the fall and sin and must be repented of. Those words are abrupt and abrasive when I say must be repented of. They are absolutely true because if those desires aren't repented of, repented of, those are sins that will send someone to hell. But there's also the recognition, and I, I actually moved it to a different section, but there was a whole thing on here about people who profess Christ wrestling with these desires. For some Christians, when they are born again, the same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria is removed right away by the Lord, praise God. For other people, there are desires that are a daily struggle, just as this person struggles with sin, and this person struggles with this type of lust, this person struggles with that type of lust, and all Christians everywhere must, whatever your species of sin be, submit it to Christ and trust Him. And so there, there is, uh, I have a, a friend uh, who is a good pastor, and he um, wrestles with same-sex attraction, repents of it, submitted it to Christ, and by God's grace has continued to kill those desires. And he is married and has uh, multiple beautiful children, but it's something that he has to be vigilant with. It is a remaining besetting sin that he has and more. So it has to be repented of because the desire itself is sin. And that's why I went back, think back to the Martin Luther quote, simultaneously justified and sinful. And that's why there's grace, because Christians struggle with remaining sin. And because of that, we know that we all are in need of daily grace 
and the gospel to be reapplied over and over again to ourselves. So same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria, no matter how strong or powerful they feel, are nonetheless deceitful desires that we spoke of previously. I'll just pause there and ask if there's any questions. I may punt on your question if it's going to get more until we get into actual gender and marriage and sexuality. Here's a question. Okay. Hi, good night. Uh, how could a uh, Christian avoid those de sin desires? Uh, ask that again, brother. How could a Christian avoid those sin desires. Yes. How can a Christian avoid any, any sinful desires? That goes back to the Ephesians 5 passage. It's the daily renewal of our mind with the word of God and prayer. And we're not autonomous individuals. We enlist the help of brothers and sisters in Christ that we entrust our besetting sins to them and say, will you uphold me in prayer? So there's the daily intake of the Bible, daily um, confession of remaining sin, remembering our justification in Christ, and being renewed in the spirit of our minds. Very good question. Can I just share? Yeah. So that podcast, I forget the guy's name that I shared with you, Elisa Childers, that guy that was, remember his name? Christopher Yuan, Y-U-A-N. Yes, Christopher that. Um, very interesting podcast. Brother uh, struggles with same-sex attraction. And um, as Christians, that's a, that's a tricky one, right? How do, you, how do you witness to a brother or sister that still struggles with same-sex attraction? And... He, I thought this was profound, his answer on one thing he said, because people will say, well, the opposite of same-sex attraction is heterosexual attraction, right? Doesn't that just make sense, right? That would be the, the godly thing to do. And his answer is the, the um, opposite of same-sex attraction is holiness. And that was such a profound answer, because when we're trying to witness or share or encourage with a brother or sister, um, think of, of, of men women who lust after a heterosexual relationship that is an unholy desire. It's just as you went out with a desire. So I, I know that's kind of off topic, but um, I wanted to just share that with you, that there are ways on these sticky issues to share your faith and, and bring it to Christ and to know that Christ is truly holy, right? And we are to be like Christ. So I would just wanted to... Very Sorry, I keep no, you all from giving comments, and then I give a comment. Sorry. No, that's a good comment. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. So again, yes, Craig, question. Do you affirm the um, the practice of uh, if someone's struggling, perhaps with this sin or any other sin, uh, seeking um, a brother or sister that would hold you accountable? Another, regarding that sin? Um, I think so. Is there more to what you're saying? I feel no. like there's a subtext to it. No, but it was never said. Accountability? Yeah, well, to, to the, the answer that when to bring other people into our sins and ask them to pray for us. I've also known people who just well, let their Beyond praying, though, um, perhaps we, keeping yeah. a journal or... 
diary. Yeah, like having someone who check in on you, like, how are you doing today, brother, type thing. Right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's okay. also great. I've also known many Christians who lie their teeth through that, so I don't trust accountability. It only works when both parties tell the truth. Um, but, yes, that's not me denying it. Um, okay, so, again, we are embodied. We're focused on the immaterial part of ourselves. Here's the other parts that we need to think about with our world. We live in a world that locates and defines truth in personal, inward, subjective feelings. The, my truth. Have you heard the phrase, my truth, before? Just raise your hand, please, if you, if you have. Come on, really? I'm just going to assume it's 100%. A- Andy uses that all the time. <laughs> Yes. Why is it wrong for our world to say my truth, your truth, and whatever derivative there is? Here's why. When truth is located internally, when it's sourced in me, and subjectively, meaning how I feel and how I interpret my world, my, my lived experience becomes my truth. Those tend to be equated as the same idea. And it presumes that I'm a perfect interpreter of my experiences in the world. When truth is located internally and subjectively, it's the death of true truth. In the Bible, God is in himself the truth. We saw this with Jesus in John 14, 6. Jesus is not just truthful or have lots of truth in him. Jesus is himself truth with flesh on In the Bible, God is in himself the truth, and all truth flows from him. The truth of God not only governs the physical universe, there are some scripture passages, the truth of God also governs the morality of his creatures. The reason I'm saying that is when people say my truth, it's usually code for some desire or some emotion or some want or some experience. And they say it's their truth or it's their desire, and then they totalize it for all people, and you can't argue with it. But we have to recognize is that God is the moral governor of creation. He is. And truth is reality as God defines it according to his word. Both the physical universe, and think about this for a moment. We've spent so much time, and we'll continue to spend a lot of time in Genesis 1. When God creates all things, those first days, except for humanity, how did he create them? By his word. And God said... You have God's spoken word creating the physical universe, and then you have God's moral word put into a book. But it's all of God's word. It's all of God's word going out by his spirit to accomplish his purposes. So this means then that in our world, that mor- the morality by which God will judge every person is not culturally subjective, nor personally relative, but established and proclaimed in his word. Let me see if I can say that differently. The great white throne judgment, Revelation 20. Or when Jesus sits on the throne, Matthew 24 and 25, sheep and goats. 
He is not, and the Bible talks about opening books because it's kept records of what people have said and done. Jesus is not going to say, well, how did you feel when you did that? Okay, that's not a sin. He is not going to ask us to arbitrate or judge among ourselves whether or not sin is sin. God has spoken in his word. Consider the Ten Commandments, the two tablets, our relationship to God and our relationship to others. Consider the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus says. So God will hold humanity, who in Romans 1, what does humanity do outside of Christ with the truth of God? Suppress it, right? Hold the beach ball under the water, but it's going to pop up. You can't hold it down for very long, no matter how hard they try. So in a world that says, my truth, your truth, Jesus says in Mark 8, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone will come after me, let him be his truth and follow himself. Is that what it says? Okay. What are you supposed to do with Jesus? He says, if anyone would come after me, step one, let him deny himself. Step two, take up the cross. Step three, follow me. And when he says take up his cross, as the picture of every Christ follower bearing your own or carry, bearing your own cross, which is the death of yourself and your desires and submission to God and following him in addition to your sins. Whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So once again, we have this opposite perspective. Jesus' way and the way of the world, and there's no mixture between the two. The mantra of our age, I always pick on this, I feel that followed by the truth claim, when so-called truth is relocated internally and subjectively, rather than externally and objectively, there's no longer a basis for reality or civilization, let alone discourse, intelligent conversation. And the reason is that you can't argue with someone else's feelings and emotions. They can't be proven true or false. You can be truly sincere and yet be sincerely wrong. Sincerity does not create truth, I once heard said. It's kind of like sharing the gospel with uh, some Mormon missionaries. And when you have the Bible open and they're sharing and then eventually it comes back down to the burning in the bosom that they feel, well, it's this subjective feeling I have, the burning in my chest, that lets me know that Mormonism is true, they say. And that's when the argument breaks down. Because you can show them all the pages of Scripture and all, that you, all that's written, and they can say, I know it's true because I feel it. Personal experience is a reality. We experience things. 
but they can be wrongly or rightly interpreted. We aren't all seeing, all knowing, only God is. We don't know the motives of the other person. We're really good at mishearing, misinterpreting. We're really good at letting our emotions get ahead of ourselves. So it may be true that something happened. It may be true that you feel a certain way, but personal experience does not create a totalizing truth for all people of all places of all times. This is tantamount to self-deification, um, making yourself a god. I am my own and highest authority, right? Autonomy means self-law. Live your truth is a deceitful slogan. There's only one truth to live, and that's Jesus Christ's. My truth and your truth is a magical word game. And you need to realize that. We are living right now in a day and age where, so um, with Mormonism, for example, you, if you take a Christian cult, they have the same dictionary with different definitions. So if you say baptism to a Mormon, it means something completely different than it does to a believer in Christ. Well, the same thing with our world right now, what's happening is that all manner of normal meaning of words that have been received are being co-opted by and redefined by a small group of people. Racism, social justice, um, truth, and more. And they get changed without a consensus or anyone else's advice or counsel that just gets changed. And so then when you talk to somebody, they're using, you're using the same words with two different definitions. That's why I say my truth, your truth is a magical word game that misuses the true meaning of truth to be what it's not. Same word, different dictionary. So the younger a person is, the more they only know the new definitions and not the definitions that have existed for a very, very long time. And that has to be taken into consideration when going on to campus and sharing the gospel, talking with other people, and then as a believer, recognizing that these different terms are being used. You do you, the mantra of our age is expressive individualism, which is diametrically opposed to the biblical view of worshipful submission, self-denial, and cross-bearing. Expressive individualism, individualism says you are your feelings. And think about our conversation on neo-gnosticism. The inner person is more important than the material person that we've looked at. You hurt my feelings. To hurt another person's feelings is neo-gnostic, relativistic blasphemy. <laughs> Here's why. Because it challenges their autonomy as an authentic self. If your inner person is the true you, and something you say with your word violence and microaggressions hurts that person's feelings, you're hurting the true them. And so that's why I'm using this idea of neo-gnostic, relativistic blasphemy. And blasphemy, you can only blaspheme God, that's because people self-deify. On this view, a person can never be told they're wrong, in error, let alone in sin, 
Yet scripture calls the Christian to call people to repent of their sin, speak the truth in love, and we're supposed to correct, rebuke, and mourn. Of course, this is done by first removing the log from our own eyes. But that word rebuke, in some instances, literally means to cut, to, to hurt. And so this makes evangelism all the more difficult because Jesus says everybody everywhere is wrong outside of him and must repent of all of their feelings and all of their inner life and everything. So we have to know that we are moving towards um, increasingly a perspective that the Bible is hate speech and must be removed. And if you were here thinking back to the first class, first first two classes, we talked about the rise of neo-Marxism and the godless view that what's, what's wrong with the world, at least in the West, is their cultural hegemony all the fancy talk, which simply means the majority. What's wrong with the world is that the majority are in power. And the majority worldview for centuries and longer has been a Christian worldview. But the Christian worldview is repressive and oppressive and misogynistic, patriarchal hate speech and racist somehow. So... It must be removed is what those who hold to any species of the fluid neo-Marxist ideas that are out here and being taught at the secular seminary. And so that's why it's very important that as a Christian, we believe that the word of God is authoritative or it's not, and it's sufficient or not, and that the gospel is the power of God of salvation or not. Um, it's, it's pretty important. Because when you step out to share the gospel with somebody, there is a weight to it where you're not sharing the gospel anymore with a culture that has a Christian worldview and thinks that it's a good idea to go to, you know, good people go to church on Sunday and I'm a bad person because I didn't go to church. That doesn't exist anymore. We're in the negative world where there's hostility in Hollywood, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., and New York, hostility at the social elitism level if you profess Christ. So the cost to be a Christian is increasingly more difficult. Um, just real quick. Summary then. The inner person, your heart, soul, feelings, desires, sexual desires, identity, impulses, etc. is an aspect of being an embodied image bearer of God. Yet the whole inner person, every part, so to speak, is ruined by sin and the curse on creation yielding deceitful desires in opposition to and rejection of God, the whole world system has revived ancient Gnosticism and located truth, morality, and meaning in the feelings of the autonomous individual. Even so, the inner person is redeemed and being renewed for those in Christ, hence the biblical language of being born again, new heart, new spirit, new creation, new humanity. And then here's this little chart I came across on a gospel track called You Do You. And it's um, the link is actually down there, but I don't think it's in print anymore. And this just sets apart everything that we've been talking about right here. So that is a big, long talk weaving through the trees of the interior life and especially 
do you follow your heart and the internal emotions that we have and more and truth and all of those things? Um, any questions before we move on to talking about the conscience? Another part of the inner part of ourselves. Preston. Yeah, just uh, can you um, clarify what you meant on F1 where you said it is the death of true truth, capital T? I was trying to be cute with my words. Uh, let's see, the true truth. So I'm trying to communicate that if, if, if postmodernism is true and truth is relative to whatever you want, and if that actually, see, it's, um, it's inherently self-contradictory that there's no absolute truth. So what I'm trying to communicate then is if it's universally true that truth is not universal, this is making it clearer. <laughs> okay, hold on a second because I just said that. Uh, I think I got it, but in case I don't, could yeah. you start over? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Truth must be outside of us. Morality must be outside of us or civilization breaks down. And I'm just calling the truth, the true truth to play with words. Yeah. But what I was saying there is that postmodernism is inherently self-defeating, meaning postmodernism, which says that truth is relative, is a universal claim. Postmodernism says there is no universal truth, which is a universal statement about truth, and therefore it cannot be true. It's inherently contradictory. Okay. The conscience. Yes. Yes, Craig. Question. Um, uh, letter G, where you wrote summary, and you used the word um, the inner person. Are yeah. you using it, trying trying to use it the same way that Paul uses the inner man? The, like in Ephesians 3.16, which says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man? Yes. Okay. Just, just using a bunch of different uh, words to describe the non-material aspect of a human person. Okay. But the, he's referring to one that is uh, has a new heart. That has a what? A new heart. His spirit within. Yeah. Through his spirit in the inner man. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's referring to a Christian's inner man. Mandy, <laughs> I, I saw that whole whole thing happen. I thought you, you had. So I well thought you were going to have to heal you or something for a second there. <laughs> I know. You, I know. You're awesome, and we love your questions. Um, so I have two questions, and I'm trying to decide which one to ask. Well, okay, okay. Can I ask both and just ask one first? Yeah, and then, the but if it's gonna, if it's, if we're gonna go. Then, well, I'll answer the question. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, something that has always seemed funny to me is that the, the whole your truth thing. Um, they, I feel like the people in that camp tend to embrace, like, Muslims and a lot of other sort of within the Western world religious minorities. Um, 
I don't know like what you've seen with research or something, but what, what have you seen with that and how do they justify <laughs> like, cause Muslims clearly believe in absolute truth and stuff if they're legitimate. Um, but yet they seem to be embraced. Okay. Like, like Muslims are good guys. And yeah, are guys. yeah. Yeah. Intersectionality. They, they would be an oppressed people so, by the Western white cultural biblical hegemony. So they're, they're allowed to have their own absolute truth because it's different from the mainstream one, basically. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. They're, yeah. Yeah, victims. So it doesn't – like they can believe they're – yeah, okay. Um, the other thing was is I've had some conflicts over the past year with uh, some individuals, and their excuse for hurtful behavior was, well, that – my intention wasn't to be hurtful. Um but the behavior was still hurtful. And I was just wondering, I don't, I feel like that applies, but I don't know if that applies to this. And I was just curious how you would speak to that. Like a person using, yeah. well, that wasn't my intention as a way to say, well, basically I didn't sin or it wasn't my fault. Or the, um, I would say to that person and to all of us that both the means, the motives, the means and the ends all matter. Why I do it, how I do it, and what its result is, that all matters. My motive, the means, and the ends of what's accomplished. So you could get the right response the wrong way from the wrong motive, and it could look good on the outside and be all sin. So it all, it all matters. And so that's the thing where we can you know, help each other think, yeah, but that tone of voice is important, or something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's uh, let's advance, friends. Another part of the inner person. We're not going to go into this too deeply because there is a, a three or four part sermon series that you can four part sermon series you can listen to on this about the conscience. So now we're singling out one part of the immaterial part of ourselves. The conscience is one's internal sense of right and wrong that either accuses or excuses oneself of guilt and shame innocence and acceptance it's that angel or demon on either shoulder that the cartoons show it's one's inner lawyer for good or bad there is a part of us so to speak that either accuses or excuses us it commends or condemns us it's our own internal lawyer jury and judge turned back on ourselves it's our own internal moral compass so the irony with our day and age and the your truth, my truth, inner feelings, you do you, is it is hyper-moral. It is extremely moral, and yet you can't say anyone else is immoral. And yet God has placed in every human being a conscience that can be calibrated by the Bible. The conscience is a, is a moral aspect of our being that is distinguished from our will and our actions it feels independent of us and pronounces us guilty or innocent, right? So no one likes to walk around feeling guilt or shame, and yet somehow we can't shake it off. So there's a part of us that is making us feel guilty or shame, and so we try to numb that somehow. It feels independent of us, and it pronounces us guilty or innocent. The conscience is your own God-given personal sense of right and wrong turned back upon you. The conscience is not static, but can be shaped and formed daily towards or away from the word of Christ. The conscience, so Romans 1, 
the world is suppressing the truth of God and trying to gather together as many voices as possible to say that sin is beautiful and right, all the while trying to suppress the conscience. Now, the Bible does speak about the conscience being seared and unfeeling and things along those lines. But the conscience is a gift of God to all people. It's an instrument of the Holy Spirit uses with the word of God to convict or guide, especially for the believer. Um, Getting into the unbeliever and gospel proclamation and showing them sin, um, I think the Spirit can use the conscience to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and more. But um, the the conscience is designed to be formed and informed by the freedom of the gospel of the word of Christ. So again, there's you can go online and listen to that four-part series called Unity, Conscience, and Christian Freedom. But with just that ultra-brief, just passing by observation that you've got a conscience, hopefully, and it should work, hopefully, questions on conscience. Okay, no comments. The effects, so this, we should have tackled this earlier, but we're tackling it now. Okay, so step back. We're thinking about that to be created in the image of God means to be embodied. We are physical and spiritual, hardware and software, material and immaterial. The effects of sin and the curse affect the whole person, material and immaterial. The effects of sin on, uh, and the curse on creation affect the hardware and software of the whole person, the whole integrated person. So consider what happens physically. Consider how what happens physically affects us spiritually and vice versa. For example, and I'm not going to go through all of these, but intoxication, right? So drugs or alcohol, someone con- consumes a physical material, matter, digests, goes physiologically into the body, and yet somehow that also affects the immaterial part of us, our judgment, our motives, our will, our desires, and more, um, incites sin along those lines. Uh, You need to think about, this became something that I was really, really actually interested in um, early in my Christian walk. One thing, I also had that functional Gnostic idea for Christians that the physical doesn't matter and it's bad and the spiritual is good. And I was in my home office up in Portland working all day on the sermon. It's like two o'clock and I had fueled myself with like two pots of coffee and tons of pancakes and syrup. And that's all I had eaten. Then I hadn't eaten for a bunch of hours. It's like two o'clock. My beautiful wife knocks on the door and asks if I want a sandwich. Bible's open, right in a sermon. I turn around and it's... I mean, just full-on jerks in face to my wife. No self-control. Just totally sinned against her because she wanted to make me a sandwich. And I, it just struck me how lack of self-control, and, and I just began to evaluate. I had been being a poor steward of myself. I was super jittery, like amped up from drinking all the coffee there ever was. Pancakes and syrup, not the best idea, gut bomb. And I'm just sitting there feeling horrible. And that made it much easier for me to not be self-controlled, 
to lose self-control and sin against my wife because she interrupted me because she wanted to serve me. And that sent me on this quest to think about because we are whole integrated people, material and immaterial, what we do physically affects us spiritually or immaterially. And what we do immaterially, anxiety um, and more affects us physically and vice versa. We all know that, we all experience it, but we don't seem to put it right in front of us when, well, we talked before about being hangry, right? The, that little season where it was, everyone was saying they were hangry because it was okay to be, well, hungry like I was in sin. But if you're tired, why is it if you're super tired, it's much easier to sin or to fall into sin? Lust, stress, sickness, hormones. Here's a quote for you. Wait, I want to go over I just highlighted hormones. Your hormones totally get a free pass. They do not. How you feel, no matter how much estrogen or testosterone is surging through your body, is no excuse to sin and to sin against others. Um, When our hormones cause us to lose lose self-control, we are in sin. Importantly, these components can't be sequestered into discrete parts of human nature, some pertaining to the soul and others to the body. Rather than thinking in terms of isolation or even influence, we should think in terms of interconnectivity. All of these aspects, he's talking about the embodied, or the material and immaterial, all of these aspects are inextricably linked together. For example, grief over the loss of a loved one or trauma due to verbal abuse doesn't only affect one's soul, it's carried physically. These bodily manifestations may not occur for months or years after the grief or trauma, but when they exhibit, they come with a vengeance, insomnia, digestive problems, fidgetedness, fidgetedness, however you say that, lack of mental clarity, uh, proneness to disease, chronic fatigue, migraines, uncontrollable sobbing, and much more. Our mental, emotional, volitional, moral, physical components are dependent on one another and together are determinative for human existence, whether for suffering and misery or for flourishing. I want you to think then, because this is our world denies this, this is all building up to addressing our neo-Marxist moment and the LGBTQ plus um, um, cultural onslaught and more that we're seeing. The fall and the curse affect us physically as embodied people. Sickness, deformity, disability, infertility, hormones, appetite, your body image, your mental health, which... Should go to the next section, but you need to understand that that we can be physiologically our physical selves. Deformity exists physiologically exists as a result of the curse on creation. Color blindness, our broken eyes, all different aging, all of these things, the fall and the curse affect us physically. And even though we're redeemed in Christ, we're still in, we're not in our glorified bodies yet. And so our glorified bodies are still subject to the curse. But that's why Christians 
can have a amazingly profound gospel doctrine regarding Down syndrome and disability and keep the baby who's in the womb, who is nonetheless maybe not conforming to the norm of what the majority of humanity looks like. And it also means that for those, all of us who are sorry and wrecked by the fall physically, when we get new glorified bodies in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no disability. Praise God. But the fall and the curse affect us immaterially as embodied people. And this is the denial of our cultural moment. The fall and sin affect us mentally, our intellect, our knowledge, our memory, understanding, thinking, our ability to reason, our perception, and whatever other terms we could multiply for mental faculties, the mind... It's wrecked by the fall. Outside, uh, in Christ, being renewed. So that's why, uh, for example, um, elites in society who are um, have high uh, Mensa scores, brilliant, can be really stupid and more. And that begins with Proverbs tells us, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But we have to understand the fall touches everything, emotional, your feelings, passions, affections, your sentiments, and your attitudes, your, your volition, your will, desire, judgments, your purposing, your choosing, your decision-making, your motives, and your conscience and your morality, your ethics, right and wrong, guilt, shame, judgment, all of the non-physical part of us is also affected by the fall. I, I forget what it's called. What is it in psychology? Is it called the DSM? Any former psych students? The... Yeah, the DSM is the big, well, it's the decreasingly thick book where it used to be that any manner of LGBTQ plus was assigned as a mental illness and more, gender dysphoria, which is the big talk, and, and then what's happening to children and uh, with um, sex reassignment surgery and hormones and things along those lines at early ages, all of that abuse that's taking place. Um, and the weight on the um, neo-pagan medical establishment is simply to conform to the onslaught of this is how you feel, okay, we'll take it out of the DSM book. It's no longer a psychological or mental problem that needs to be healed. It just needs to be embraced and celebrated and more. And so that becomes important because we've talked a lot about how you don't follow your heart how our desires are corrupt, deceitful desires. And here I'm just pointing out that we need to recognize that the fall affects the entire person. So as Christians, we need to not only rediscover, but further develop a theological view of the effects of sin on the immaterial aspect of embodiment. Feelings and emotions, thoughts, desires, attitudes, motives, and more. It seems like um, we as Christians, without thinking too well about it, are aware of the big flashy sins, the adultery, the drunkenness, the theft, or something like that. But when it comes to the interior life of desires and emotions, 
it almost seems like those are no-touch, off-limit areas that can also be called to repent of. Um, And so we need to think well and wisely and graciously about how sin affects emotions and thoughts, desires, attitudes, and motives. So if authenticity is to match the real you, the you that you feel you are on the inside, then how does the doctrine of the deceitfulness of sin inform this? We must evaluate and conform how we feel with Scripture, repent of that which does not conform, and pray for God's grace to change how we feel. So, I am going to, if you will give me, I don't really want to go through this. I'm going to skim it so we can come with modesty when we get back together because class is done. What about body modification? We've spent all this time thinking about the immaterial self. Now we're switching the lens to the physical self. What is permissible and not permissible for a Christian in modifying their body? And it's something that's important to think about. And so this is an ethical question. The aim of this class is not to answer each of these ethical questions, but to put them before you to go, hmm, I should think about that. And where is that boundary line of where we can go? And here are some um, examples of Scripture that you can look up where Scripture does speak to cross-dressing. Scripture does speak to a woman putting on makeup and braided hair and her clothing. Scripture does speak to drinking some wine for medicinal purposes. Scripture does speak to prayers for healing. And so, can you get dental implants? Can you defend that biblically? And it's not because you already have them. Health and fitness. Is it sinful to be a bodybuilder or a fitness model? Can you get bolts, screws, rods, and all manner of fixing your bone breaks? Can you get stints in your arteries? Is that okay? Can you take medical drugs and supplements? Can you put on makeup? How much? Painting your nails, haircuts, shaving? Is it sin to shave? Is it sin to put on perfume or deodorant? Tattoos? Piercings? If so, what, where, and when? How about body augmentation? And then what about attempting to change your body into what it's not? Can you become an animal, a demon, a vampire, or transgender? No, you can't. Well, uh, that that's our time. A lot of talking this evening. I wanted to move us quick, well, quickly through getting to the end. Uh, please read this section on modesty. It's really important how you present the way you look to the watching world and to fellow believers. And we will jump into next time, what is gender? Let me pray for us, and then I'm happy to stay here for, for a while and uh, take questions. Lord, we thank you that you've made us embodied. We, <clears throat> we thank you that your, your word has a, a lot to say about what it means to be us physically and spiritually. And pray, Lord, that we as believers would treasure and cherish and wonder that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by you. And we also, Lord, pray that you would strengthen us to be able to give a defense for the hope that's in us in Jesus in a world that is 
backwards and upside down regarding gender, sexuality, embodiment, marriage, family, and more, that what your word says about being human is one of the greatest doctrines under threat right now. So help us treasure and represent you well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.